You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Some of the hidden humor in the rest of the book of Acts, but not in chapter 15 because Luke is dealing with and Paul is confronting an issue of enormous proportions. So Acts chapter 15 really is the hinge of the book of Acts in many ways. I want you to think of the book of Acts in terms of being a door that kind of turns on three different hinges. The first is a biographical hinge. And what I mean by that is in Acts chapter 9, there is a biographical hinge of the book of Acts, and it is the conversion of Saul of Tarsus, the Apostle Paul, where Luke is going to turn from the ministry of Peter to the ministry of Paul. And so there's a biographical hinge. Then in Acts chapter 13, there is a geographical hinge. That is where the gospel goes from being primarily a Jewish entity centered in Jerusalem to being a Gentile entity all over the world. That's Acts chapter 13 when Paul and Barnabas are sent out and they go on their missionary journey. There's a biographical hinge, a geographical hinge. Acts chapter 15 is a theological hinge. Everything in the book has been leading up to this event theologically and everything from this point on is going to come out of this theologically. This is the central theological issue of the book of Acts. And so it is important if we are going to understand the worldwide progress of the gospel and what was going on in those first 100 years of church history, particularly with the ministry of Paul, it is essential that we understand the theological issues that are going on in Acts chapter 15 and understand the context in which that is happening so that we can get a handle on what is theologically the central most significant chapter in all of the book. Theologically, the most essential issue is not tongues. It's not healings. It's not miracles. It's not the Sabbath. Theologically, the central issue of the book of Acts is this. What is the relationship of uncircumcised Gentile believers to the law of Moses? Particularly, must they be circumcised to be Christians? Or once they have been become Christians, do we then have to circumcise them and instruct them to keep the law of Moses. So for four weeks we're going to be talking about circumcision. To give you an idea of how central theologically this book is to the rest of the book of Acts, Acts chapter 15 is the last time Peter occurs in the narrative. We're going to see Peter in Acts chapter 15, then never again. He just fades into the background permanently from this point forward. Jerusalem does as well. Now Jerusalem has been here, it'll be in the rest of the book of Acts, but it is not the central hub of all of God's activity as it once was. Jerusalem and Peter and the Jewish character of Christianity is about to become a completely silent issue because from this point forward, Christianity is going to explode onto the world scene. And within 10 years, Paul will have it in Rome and in Asia and in Europe. The guy is going international in a hurry. And it all comes out of Acts chapter 15. So in the next four weeks, let me do this. Let me give you a four-point outline for Acts chapter 15. In verses 1 to 5, Luke gives us the disagreement that caused this thing called the Council of Jerusalem. It is when the elders and the apostles in Jerusalem met to discuss this key theological issue. What is the relationship of Gentile Christians to the law of Moses? In verses 1 to 5, we get the the, uh, disagreement that this council addressed. 
Then we're going to be looking at the discussion that was held, then the decision that was made, and then lastly, we're going to look at the delight that this decision caused amongst Gentile Christians. So today, we're just going to deal with this disagreement that sparked or caused the Jerusalem Council. The the council addressed this issue. What is the theological issue? What is this disagreement that caused the apostles and the elders to meet and then to argue and hash out this theological point? This is the disagreement, verses 1 to 5. And we're going to notice three things this morning. Before we get into that, I want to give you a little bit of background to what's been going on in this context. I want you to read the verses with me again, and then we'll jump into them. Some men came down from Judea and began teaching the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And when Paul and Barnabas had great dissension and debate with them, the brethren determined that Paul and Barnabas and some others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders concerning this issue. Therefore, being sent on their way by the church, they were passing through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles, and were bringing great joy to all the brethren. When they arrived at Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they reported all that God had done with them. But some of the sect of the Pharisees who had believed stood up saying, it is necessary to circumcise them and to direct them to observe the law of Moses. Now, Luke has been building up to this event in Acts chapter 15. If you had taken this book when the ink was still a little damp from Luke's hand, and whether you were a Jew or a Gentile, if you had cracked it open and started to read Acts chapter 1, before long, having been familiar with the conflict between the Jews and the Romans, the Jewish attitude towards Gentiles, whether you're a Gentile or a Jew, you would be reading the book of Acts and saying to yourself, I know what's coming. There is something that is going to have to be dealt with before long. It's going to face these new believers. And then you would read into Acts chapter 5 and 6 and 7 and you'd be saying, there's a uniquely Gentile flavor here. Then you get to Acts chapter 8, Samaritans getting saved. And then Acts chapter 10, Cornelius gets saved. And then Acts chapter 13, Paul and Barnabas begin winning large churches full of Gentiles to the Lord. And whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, you'd be saying to yourself, they're going to have to deal with something. They're going to have to deal as a church with this subject. What is the relationship of these Gentile believers to the Old Testament Jewish law? How do they stand in relation to this? What is required of them? So that's what Luke has been building up to. And you see it happening from Acts chapter two, uh, Acts chapter one, actually, when Jesus said, "You shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem." And I can imagine the apostles and the disciples saying, "Jerusalem, Lord, that's a good idea. We're right here. This is a good place to start." And Judea, that's a fine idea too. I have family in Judea, and in Samaria. Whoa, 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 Samaria. Lord, are you aware that there are half-breed Jews in Samaria, and that we have nothing to do with Samaritans? and to the remotest parts of the earth. Lord, there's Gentiles out there. Luke introduced it at the beginning of the book. Now, the apostles were not too hot, too keen on the idea of Gentile evangelism. You see, the gospel didn't get outside of Jerusalem intentionally. It happened because of a persecution. Philip fled Jerusalem. He took the gospel with him, went to Samaria. Peter and John heard the Samaritans had believed the word of the gospel. They couldn't believe it. They had to go down to Samaria to see for themselves. And they arrived, and sure enough, here's all these Samaritans trusting in Christ for salvation. They hadn't received the Spirit yet until Peter and John laid hands on them and identified themselves with these new 
half-breed, if you will, disciples, half-Jews, half-Gentile Samaritans. Then they received the Spirit. But we can accept the Samaritans because, after all, they do have some Jewish blood and most of them are circumcised. So we can accept them into the church, but let's keep our circle small. But then the circle got a little bit bigger when the vision came to Peter and said, there are men at the gate, go with them to the house of Cornelius. And Peter left and he showed up there and realized after the vision that the Lord was teaching him that God does not show partiality to any man. So Peter preaches the gospel to Cornelius and in mid-sentence before Peter can even add anything to the gospel of grace, Cornelius gets saved and begins evidencing it by speaking in tongues, a little mini Gentile Pentecost, right there in the house of Cornelius. Dirty little secret, got saved without being circumcised. (gasps) Are you kidding? Peter was convinced. He received the Spirit just as we did at the beginning on the day of Pentecost. So he goes back to Jerusalem. Were the apostles excited about this new Gentile becoming a Christian? Hey, they pulled Peter in on the carpet. You went into the home of uncircumcised Gentiles and ate with them. And Peter said, hey, let me tell you the story. He recounted the whole thing. The vision going down there, what Cornelius had said, and how the angel had appeared to him, and how right in the middle of his gospel presentation, this guy, this uncircumcised Gentile, had the audacity to get saved and filled with the Spirit. So finally the apostles said, well then, Acts chapter 11, verse 18, God has granted also to the Gentiles repentance that leads to life. Imagine that. A Gentile getting saved. But up to this point, it's been Gentiles who are proselytes. You see, the Ethiopian eunuch was coming back from Jerusalem from worshiping. Cornelius was a God-fearing Jew, or a God-fearing Gentile who gave alms to the God of Jerusalem. He was a God-fearer. So we can have our Jewish church. Well, we can let in Samaritans because they are circumcised. And yeah, we can let in the Ethiopian eunuch. I mean, after all, he was a proselyte. Then there's Cornelius. He's not circumcised, but he's really the exception to the rule. So we'll go ahead and let him in as long as we can keep the the circle small. Then there's Paul. Oh, this guy had the audacity to take the gospel where it had never been before. And he goes out and he starts preaching the gospel among utter pagans who have never observed the law of Moses, never been circumcised, never attended a feast, and were anything but God-fearers. And not only that, but he's planting churches throughout the Roman Empire. And now the Jewish church in Jerusalem is faced with this dilemma. There are about to be more Gentile believers in Christianity than there are Jewish believers in Christianity. And they've got to do something to rein this in. So there is a sect amongst them who wants to keep Christianity as a distinctly Jewish sect. And that did not sit well with the apostle to the Gentiles. Because he's been leading Gentiles to Christ and not requiring them to keep the law of Moses, not requiring them to observe the Sabbath, and not requiring circumcision of them. Now, you've got to throw the book of Galatians into this whole mix too because of all the New Testament books, the book of Galatians is the one book that deals completely, succinctly, and totally with this subject and all of its ramifications. I told you last week the book of Galatians was written between chapters 14 and chapters 15 of the book of Acts, particularly in the combination of verse 28 of chapter 14 and verse 1 of chapter 15. So looking at your Bible in chapter 14, verse 28, it says that after they returned from their first missionary journey, they spent a long time in Antioch with the disciples. It is during that long time that verse 1 of chapter 15 happens. Some men came down from Judea, that is from Jerusalem, And they began teaching the brethren that unless you're circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Now I have to incorporate some of the, from Paul's perspective, of what comes up in Galatians into Acts chapter 15 because 
Paul gives us his take on some things that form a background here. And Luke's giving us his take on some things that form the background here. So let's try and put them both together. If you turn to the book of Galatians chapter 2, you'll find that verses 1 to 10 of Galatians chapter 2, and there's no need to turn there unless you just want to look over it because I'm not going to be going into any detail there. Verses 1 to 10 of Galatians chapter 2 has to deal with one of Paul's visits to the city of Jerusalem. It is what is known as the famine visit, and we covered it back in chapter 11. You remember Paul and Barnabas took up the offering from the church at Antioch, and they took it down to Jerusalem, or up to Jerusalem, down, you know, technically, down to Jerusalem, and gave it to the churches of Judea. But Paul tells us that there was somebody else who went with he and Barnabas, and it was Titus. And when they showed up in Jerusalem, there was this controversy that came up over circumcision, back in Acts chapter 11. And the Apostle Paul says that Titus was with him and they were putting pressure on Paul and Barnabas to circumcise Titus because he was a Gentile believer. And they were saying, you have to circumcise him. But Paul said, we did not yield to them for even an hour so that the truth of the gospel might remain with you. He didn't give in. But he went into Peter and John privately and, and James and discussed this with them privately and said, here's the gospel that I've been presenting among the Gentiles. What do you think of it? Is it right? And Peter and John and James all gave him the right hand of fellowship and said, that's right. That's the gospel. Add nothing to it. Take nothing from it. It's fine. And they recognized that the grace of God had worked in Paul for apostleship to the Gentiles. And the grace of God was working in Peter to apostleship to the Jews. So Peter, Paul left Jerusalem with Barnabas and Titus having discussed this issue because it came up. There was a little bit of controversy. But now the apostle Paul has planted four churches, mostly Gentiles, in Roman provinces. And now this issue has really reached the boiling point. they got to deal with it. And so it's come up again. But Acts cha- uh, Galatians chapter 2, verse 11, says that Peter came down from Jerusalem. This is sometime after Paul's missionary journey. He, he's there in Antioch with Paul, and they are together. And Peter had this thing where he would sit down and he would eat with Gentiles. Peter could sit down and have bacon and eggs. He could sit down and eat a ham sandwich or pork rinds or, or whatever else. Didn't have a problem with it. Fellowshipping with believing Gentiles, uncircumcised Gentiles, no problem for Peter. But Paul says in Galatians chapter 2, verse 12, that some men came down from James. In other words, they claimed to have James's authority. They came from Jerusalem. They showed up in Antioch and they started putting pressure on Peter. Don't eat with those uncircumcised Gentiles. They're unclean. And Peter acted out of fear, not out of conviction. And he eventually started to distance himself from the Gentiles and he would eat with Jews lest he be looked down upon by them. And Paul said it got so bad that even Barnabas was carried away with his hypocrisy. Barnabas fell into the trap as well. So Paul said when Peter came down, I confronted him to his face. Paul got right in Peter's face in front of everybody, and he said, you're a hypocrite. You're saying one thing about the gospel, and you're living another. The gospel that you preach says that Gentile believers without circumcision are clean in the sight of God. There's no need for the Old Testament law and all the dietary law. That's what you're preaching. But when you sit down to eat, it's a different story. In the church, you side over here with the Jews and you leave those Gentile believers without anything. And even Barnabas was carried away with it. I suspect Paul, as far as the leadership of Barnabas and Paul and Peter was concerned, he stood alone. But he said to Peter, you're a hypocrite. Peter got it all straightened out. Eventually, Peter left and went back to Jerusalem. Then Paul, before he left to Jerusalem, he wrote the book of Galatians. He described his trip to to Jerusalem in Acts chapter 11. He described his confrontation of Peter. And before Paul gets the decree from the Jerusalem council, he sends off his letter to the book of Galatians, to the Galatian churches, and he leaves for Jerusalem, knowing that now Peter's on his side. And he's got Barnabas with him and some others. And they leave and go up to the Jerusalem council. So that's where we come at in Acts chapter 15. 
when Luke says that some men came down from Judea, he is talking about this contingent that came down after Peter that put pressure on Peter to compromise. And they were teaching something. So as we look at the disagreement that caused this Jerusalem council, we're going to look at three things this morning. First, the doctrine that was taught. Second, the debate that it caused. And then third, the delegation that was sent. First, the doctrine that was taught in verse 1, these men, who we call Judaizers, or the party of the circumcision, it says, some men came down from Judea, and they began teaching the brethren, and here's the content of their teaching. Unless you are circumcised, you cannot be saved. Notice that the content of their, their gospel, the content of their teaching, has to do with salvation. These are Judaizers. These are what we refer to now as the party of the circumcision. These were people, do you think they were believers? Let me ask you that. Do you think they were believers? I don't think they were. Why? Because because Luke doesn't describe these men as believers. He describes them as just some men who came down from Jerusalem. Paul says they came down from James, indicating that they were claiming Jerusalem's authority in what they were teaching. And they came down into Paul's church, and they began to come in and start teaching the disciples, have you been, have you been circumcised? Oh, no, I haven't. You can't be saved if you're not circumcised. We gotta get you down, circumcise you right away. So that you can receive the Spirit. You can be a full member of the family of God. If you haven't been circumcised, you can't possibly be saved. So here, now you have all these new believers who've just become believers in Christ. They're uncircumcised Gentiles. And they got people teaching them these things. This is the modus operandi of false teachers. They come in with their doctrines of demons, and they find the weak and the susceptible Christians, and they draw away disciples after themselves. Well, Paul and Barnabas confronted this in the church. Verse 2 says they had great dissension with them. Now, there seems to be two parties of people that Acts chapter 15 is addressing. The first is these unsaved, false teachers who are coming in in verse 1. But there's a second group in verse 5. Look at this second group. Some of the sect of the Pharisees who had believed. So these are believers. But they're Pharisee believers. And we'll deal with them sort of next week. They had believed and they began standing up and saying, it is necessary to circumcise them and teach them to observe the law of Moses. So on the one hand, you have false teachers who are saying, for salvation's sake, you cannot be saved if you're not circumcised. But then you have this other group of Pharisees who are saying, now that you're saved, we need to do these things. We're kind of adding these on. Not that you have to be saved to be circumcised to be saved, but now that you are saved, here's what you have to do. You have to be circumcised, and you have to follow and observe the law of Moses. Here's the bottom line. They were corrupting the truth. That's all Paul had to know. That's all you have to know. They're corrupting the truth. Unbelievers and believers have believed a lie. And they have added something to the gospel. And in adding something to the gospel, they have corrupted the gospel. They have corrupted the truth. They have added something to the gospel of grace. It is works. It is human merit. It is something you do. It is human righteousness. It is something you must have on top of Christ or before Christ because Christ isn't enough. So they've added something to it. Now, this is the oldest heresy in the Christian church. It started back here in Acts chapter 15 and it continues with us today in a whole host of different ways. One of the most uh, uh, local and recent aberrations or expressions of this heresy has to deal with the Churches of Christ movement and the uh, Christian church movement, which believes baptism is necessary for salvation. That adds works righteousness. It adds something to the gospel. 
If you are not baptized, you cannot be saved. They believe that the sins are not washed away until you come up out of the water, then you're saved. It's called baptismal regeneration. It is a heresy. My response to that is, you're adding something that you do to salvation, to the grace of God. And you know how they would reply to that? And I've heard them reply this to me. Baptism is not something you do, it's something that's done to you, so it's not a human work. Well, that's real cute, but it doesn't fly. It's still a human work. It doesn't matter whether it's done to you or whether you do it. It is a human work. And you are taking grace and you are adding something to it. It's no longer grace. It's either grace or it is works. But it can't be both. If it's works, it's no longer of grace. If it's grace, it's no longer of works. It comes up in the Seventh-day Adventist church. There are some sections of Seventh-day Adventism that teaches that you must keep the Sabbath and the dietary laws in order to be saved. There are other sections of the Seventh-day Adventist church that are kind of like the Pharisees in verse 5. They say, well, once you are saved, now you need to observe the law of Moses and do these things to, to, to sort of live a righteous life. That's heresy. You've taken something, you've added it to grace. Rome does it with their penance and their confession and their purgatory and their mass and all of the things that Rome adds to it, and their prayers, and their giving, and the selling of indulgences, and all of those things. How about those who say, well, now that you are saved, you have to keep your salvation, you've got to work for it. Because you might fall away, and you might lose your salvation. Same heresy, different skin. They clothe it, clothe it and dress it up different, but it's the same thing. It's human works and human righteousness, and listen, Paul would have none, none of it. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. Nobody can even say, well, my faith is my own work. No. Paul says, your faith is not of you. That is the gift of God so that no one can boast. Both the faith to believe and the salvation that it brings are all a gift. None of it is a work of righteousness. None of it is a work of human merit or human deeds. If it's of works, it's no longer of grace. If it's of grace, then there can be no works involved in it whatsoever. It is one or the other, but it cannot be both. These men were saying, Jesus is not enough. It's fine to have Jesus, but we need to bring Moses in there. You see, friends, this is more than just their little hobby horse. This is more than just a few people getting together and saying, hey, Christianity is great. Let's, let's just tweak it a little bit and let's just preach our, our little hobby horse of Christianity. That's not it. This has to do with the fundamental question, what must I do to be saved? That's the most fundamental question in all of life. What must I do to be saved? Now, if I'm sitting across the table from you, and somebody walks up to us in a restaurant and says, tell me, what must I do to be saved? And I give them one answer, and you give them another answer. We've got a serious problem, don't we? Can you and I really have fellowship if we're giving different answers to that question? You see how essential this is? Really, what they're doing is attacking the nature of what Christ did and what Christ is. The death of Christ is good as far as it goes, but after that you need baptism, circumcision, law-keeping, Sabbath-keeping, keeping the dietary laws, whatever it is, whatever the heresy of the day is. That's the idea. Christ is good as far as he goes, but he doesn't go far enough. Is the death and resurrection of Christ sufficient to save me without anything else, yes or no? Well, it's either yes or no, it's not both. Well, yes, the death of Christ saves you, but you've got to put baptism on that. You've got to put circumcision on that. You've got to put Sabbath-keeping on that. No, no, it's not that. It attacks not only the nature of what Christ did, but it attacks the nature of who Christ is. Is he the only and all-sufficient Savior or not? 
If He is, then there's nothing I can do to contribute to my salvation or keep my salvation. If He is not, then He is not the Savior of the New Testament. You see, friends, if it's 99% Christ and 1% me, that's no bridge to heaven. If the bridge to heaven consists of 99% of what Christ has done and 1% of what I do, that's no bridge. Because it's going to break down at that 1%. And I would say this to you. If you're sitting here this morning and you are trusting in anything other than the grace of Christ and what He has done completely on your behalf to save you, if you're trusting in your baptism, your Sabbath keeping, your church attendance, your giving, your good works, or anything else to get you that final distance toward heaven, you are in grave peril because Christ will accept no substitutes, no partial trust, and no rivals. He will not let you into heaven unless you are trusting in Him and Him alone for salvation. Because you might trust Him for 99% and yourself for 1%, but that leaves you 1% short. And that 1% will damn you for eternity. It's Christ and Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith alone, or it's nothing at all. You see what is at stake is of monumental proportions. What is at stake is the nature of the gospel itself, And what is at stake is the unity of the church. Is the gospel the power of God unto salvation or is it not? And once it is the power of God unto salvation, can we have Jews and non-Jews, circumcised and uncircumcised, together in one body, together in one fellowship, co-heirs and co-joint heirs of the kingdom of Christ together? Yes or no? But it can't be yes and no. So what is at stake is the nature of the gospel. The gospel is a funny thing. The gospel is the only thing in the world where once you add something to it, you have less than what you started with. It is the gospel of grace that is the power of God unto salvation. And once you add something to that, it ceases to be the gospel, and it ceases to be the power of God unto salvation. How somebody can believe a false gospel, teach a false gospel, preach a false gospel, present a false gospel to other people and be saved is beyond me. Because you have trusted in a lie. And it's not the gospel. And it's not the power of God unto salvation. Well, that explains verse 2 then, doesn't it? When Paul and Barnabas had great dissent and debate with them. Oh, I bet. Great dissent and debate. Paul and Barnabas had a gentleman's discussion over a cup of tea with them. No, I don't think so. I think they called them on the carpet. Right here in front of everybody, we're going to discuss this. And they sat down, they were in homes, they were with people. This was a hot, emotional, heated topic. Listen, I think the Apostle Paul was the most conciliatory and gracious and loving and personable and peaceful and peacemaking individual that you would ever meet in your life until you tampered with his gospel. And you did not want him for an enemy. You did not want him on the other side of that line debating you when it came to issues of eternal truth. They had great debate and dissension with him. He said, Jim, I have a hard time believing that. I picture Paul as this, this congenial, meek, mild guy who'd come in and, you know, I think you might be wrong about your presentation of the gospel. Maybe we should discuss this. I don't think so. Read the book of Galatians. I am amazed, he said to the Galatians, that you turn so quickly from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which is not another, but there are some who trouble you and they pervert the gospel of Christ. I say to you, if we or an angel from heaven preaches any other gospel to you than the one that we have preached, let him be anathema. 
As we've said before, so now I say again, if anybody preaches any other gospel to you than the one that you have received, he is to be accursed. And Paul uses the strongest word that the Greek language offered him for accursed. Let him be damned, eternally, separated from the presence of Christ. This was hot for Paul. You read through the book of Galatians and you don't get the idea that this was somebody who just had a gentleman's discussion over a cup of tea about the nature of truth. Passion and drive and enthusiasm and zeal. Gracious, gracious, yes. Conciliatory, yes. Peacemaking, yes. Until you mess with eternal truth. Then he is your enemy. And watch out because he's a bulldog. That's the dissent. The debate that was caused. Well, somebody has to figure out what's true and what's not true. Is James preaching a different gospel? Have the apostles and the elders in Jerusalem capitulated? Paul can't just send them an email and figure out. He's going to go up and he's going to test this issue for himself. So verse 2 says that after this debate, the brethren, that is the church in Antioch, determined that Paul and Barnabas and some others with them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders concerning this issue. They're going to go up and they're going to find out. Have they capitulated? Have they compromised? Have they given in to the false gospel? Now let me ask you a question that's sort of ahead of our time here in the Acts chapter 15. If Paul were to go up and find that this was indeed the case, that they were compromising in Jerusalem, do you think he would have changed? If he found that all of the other apostles had gone and started preaching that circumcision was necessary for salvation, do you think Paul would have jumped on that bandwagon and said, okay, well, if that's what you decide, I'll go with it? Now, read Galatians. Paul said, the gospel that I got, I got by revelation from Christ. I didn't receive it from men. And I think Paul knew, if I go up to Jerusalem and I find that the whole world is against me in this, I will stand alone because this is the gospel that Christ has given me to preach. And though other men may corrupt it and other men may pervert it, I will be the last man preaching it if necessary. That was how strong he was. That was how certain he was. So they leave to go up to Jerusalem, a 250-mile trip. And I think it, it would have taken about a month's time if it were a leisurely trip, which I think it was because Luke says that they went through Phoenicia and Samaria and they were describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and bringing joy to all of the brethren. In other words, Paul and Barnabas gave their slideshow everywhere that they went. On the way down to Jerusalem, they were describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles, showing them this is what happened, here's how they got saved, and it was without circumcision. And everybody was rejoicing over this. All of the other believers throughout on Paul's trip, they were glad to hear the Gentiles were becoming Christians without circumcision. It was only this little sect in Jerusalem that was pushing this issue. And as Paul traveled, he found out, hey, the Christian church is behind me on this. He was describing to them, here's how Gentiles are getting saved. And they were rejoicing. So Paul gets down there into Jerusalem, verse 4 and 5 says, that he gave his slideshow in Jerusalem. He showed up, he was welcomed by the elders and the apostles, and they reported, that is Paul and Barnabas, reported all that God had done with them. He gave them the slideshow of the first missionary journey, chapters 13 and chapter 14. Here's what we did, here's how it worked out. He presented all of this, but they ran into a hitch. Here's the hitch. Some Pharisees were there. This is obviously a public presentation. Some Pharisees were there who had believed. And they said, Paul, that's all fine and good. But now we must circumcise them and tell them to obey, observe the law of Moses. And so the sparks flew. Now there's going to be a discussion that follows this. But that is the theological issue that's at the heart of this. What is the Gentile believer's relationship to the Old Testament law? Must you have something else other than Christ and Christ alone for salvation? The eternity of millions of people hangs in the balance over this issue. 
That's why Paul went. Would the gospel continue in its purity as it should be? Or would everybody capitulate to the desires of a few who sought to pervert the gospel of Christ and thus lead men to destruction and damnation? Damnation. Now friends, I ask you to walk away from here this morning with this. There are times when you and I must fight for the truth of Scripture. There are times when we have to contend earnestly for the faith which is once for all delivered to the saints. And even if all of the world goes against us on it, we must stand for the gospel and what it is and for the truth and what it is. And the gospel of Christ is never any more than one generation away from being eclipsed by eternal darkness. Because in every generation there is a remnant of men and women who will stand up and say this is the truth and we will stand on it. And even if all men turn their back on me, this is the truth and we will stand on it. And if it were not for men and women like that, throughout the last 2,000 years, then the gospel would have been eclipsed and it would have plunged men into eternal darkness and damnation. And if you and I are not willing to follow in the footsteps of Paul and Augustine and Luther and Calvin and Spurgeon and Whitfield and Jonathan Edwards and countless others of men and women who stand for the truth, then we failed in our obligation to contend earnestly for the faith, which is once for all delivered to the saints. You and I cannot say, peace, peace, unity, unity, when the very gospel of peace and the very basis of our unity is under attack. And it is today, just like it was in Acts chapter 15, and just like it has been ever since. May God give us the grace to contend earnestly for the faith, which was once for all delivered to the saints. Let's pray. Our Father, we do thank you for your grace and for your goodness. Thank you, Father, that salvation is not by works, for if it were by works, we could never know when we have worked enough. We thank you that your grace is sufficient, that the blood of Christ is sufficient, and that he is our awesome and only Savior and all we need to stand before you clothed in righteousness and to worship and praise you for all of eternity. Thank you for that glorious gospel. Thank you that it is alive and well today. And thank you that there have been men and women like Paul who have stood for the truth of the gospel against increasingly difficult odds and in increasingly difficult times. We pray that you would give to us the grace to do that very thing. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting kootenaichurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.